Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Anthony Alegria, and this is episode 50. Now, today we've restructured the program a little bit to include a general knowledge segment. Today it'll be on the bullwhip. I'm J. Dylan Proctor. After we've had fun with bullwhips, we're going to head back inside to our studio for a bit of a talkie. We're going to discuss Vladimir Lenin and the death of his brother Sasha. The main takeaway from this conversation is going to be as follows. Your intentions matter a lot less than the virtues and values you have in your life. You see, your intentions may or may not manifest like you would expect, but at the end of the day, the moral architecture you have, in other words, the morals, the virtues that you apply in your life, those are going to be the things which determine who or what you become. Now, Lenin brought a lot of evil things into the world. Of course, he was one of the revolutionary figures bringing Marxism, communism, and socialism into Russia, and we're going to compare that to his moral architecture. Then we will be out of the studio again with Life of the Saints. I'm sick of identity politics, and I bet you are too. After we get done with Life of the Saints, we're going to head back to our studio for another talkie where we discuss what it means to be born again. A lot of times this has been turned into something that's a bit mystic, and that may be appropriate, but one of the practical sides of being born again means that your identity is found in Christ. It's not found in all the garbage that the world would throw at you. Today we're going to talk about bullwhips. The ability to reason is one of the greatest attributes of being created in the image of God. Having free will, the ability to create some really amazing things. We look at something like a bullwhip. We see characters like Indiana Jones who are cracking down on baddies. And we have to ask the question, are they really that cool? Today we're going to explore how bullwhips operate and answer that question. One of the things which is so unexpected about bullwhips is how heavy they are. They're really a lot more solid than you would give them credit for. This particular bullwhip was constructed by my brother out of nylon and it has a bit of a chain and bolt inside of it. Again, there's actually something else called a snake whip which doesn't have a fixed handle. The end of this looks like it would be flexible, but in fact it's quite rigid. So how exactly does a bullwhip work? When you actually get a hold to one, you'll notice that there is a few things which may be surprising. Whips are quite interesting how they work because as you use the whip motion, it's a little bit contradictory to what people might expect. You might expect that it's like a thrashing motion forwards that causes the whip to work, but it's actually a bit of a backwards motion that causes a whip to crack. Over here, I've got some very simple chalk drawings for us. And when you start off with a whip, again, I'm an amateur, one starting to learn to use a whip, you would take your whip and you really want it to be run out behind you. You want sort of a long string behind you. And you kind of want to start with this motion here with your handle being facing down towards the ground and the whip stretched out along behind you. Next, with your hand pointed down towards the ground, you'll start to rotate your arm up forwards. And actually, again, this is a bit unexpected. You want to have a lot of force coming up with your arm. And in sort of this motion you can see here, you have a lot of force coming upwards just like that and the whip will come up along with you. Now you've got to be careful when doing this 
because they can grab a hold to your ankles, they can grab a hold to your legs or other places if you're not used to working one, and they can rip your flesh quite easily. They're quite powerful instruments. Next, as your whip is coming up, it'll come all the way around you and you kind of want it to, to fully extend outwards. You want the whip itself to be fairly straight out in front of you, curling out in a, a long outstretched line. Again, it will start off behind you with a line going straight behind you and as you pull it up, it'll make a bit of a curve motion as it comes all the way up and you want it to get relatively straight as it's coming out above you. Next, as your arm comes up, you want to sort of have a pause as your arm gets up towards the top and let the whip go all the way out behind you. You really want the whip to make a bit of a motion where it comes all the way out. If you could imagine it looking something like a rainbow coming out of your hand, you want it to go all the way back to where the tip is fully extended behind you, making somewhat of an, an arch. Right as that whip has made that arch going backwards, then you want to pull forwards with your hand. Now this is where you get a big change of direction and a lot of energy is created because that whip is going in one direction, but you want to rotate your hand forwards. You don't really have to have a lot of force with it, but just that quick rotation and change of direction of the whip is where it draws a lot of energy. but your hand will feel like it's a lot slower than the whip is. It's sort of a surprising thing as your hand goes forwards, it's sort of a, a not too soft, but a softer aggression than what you would expect. It goes flying forwards. Again, when we think of whips, a lot of times people think that you just sort of pull it and it's a quick flick of the rips that causes it, but it's actually sort of a, a quick and powerful pull up. You come up with a very heavy motion up, and then you'll have a change of direction, which again, you don't have to really have that much force coming down. It's just the change of direction which does a lot. Fly through the air and that crack sound you hear is actually the air clapping back together as the whip has extended. It sort of split the air a little bit and then it comes back together and you hear that loud boom as that whip cracks through the air. Now for a question that everyone's been asking, can you crack a bullwhip on a hoverboard? Well, that was a lot of fun that we did out there with the bull whips. And now we're back in studio and we're gonna have a bit of time to have a talkie because talkies are important. I want us to have a conversation about intentions versus moral structure. Because a lot of times people might say, well, we've got good intentions, as if that's gonna be what determines the outcome at the end of the day. 
But I really think that your moral architecture, and again, I say moral architecture, not just moral foundation, because again, it's not just something which is your life is built upon, but you have to walk through architecture. It, it builds up. It, it changes how you, you move left or right. It changes the decisions that you make in life. You have to negotiate with it. You have to work with them. You have to work within those barriers. Our moral architecture will determine more of who we will be, what we will do, how we will change the world, than do our intentions. Because again, if someone has messed up intentions, they may produce messed up things, but sometimes people can have good intentions and produce messed up things because they don't have good moral architecture that they're working with. So I want us to talk now a little bit about Vladimir Lenin. There's a lot of people in our world who have romanticized socialism and communism. Myself and Anthony were having a conversation about how people don't really understand what socialism and communism are. A lot of times they may think that socialism is more fun than communism. Again, they don't really have good working definitions of any of it, but they like the root word of social more than like the root word of commune or anything like that. It gets really hairy really quick. But I want to talk about Vladimir Lenin today because there's something really interesting about his history which really shapes who he became and the product of his, well, the revolution that he was a part of. Vladimir Lenin, of course, is one of the very important revolutionary figures in Russia. I'm not going to be able to go into all the history of Russia pre-Soviet era, but just to give you a quick image of it all. Russia was not always a Soviet place. Right now, there is Vladimir Putin who is in charge. But before the USSR, before the Soviet era, there was actually a, a set of SARS, and that's spelled T-S-A-R. The SARS were the ones who were really in charge. It was something like a, a monarchy, something we would expect was sort of a, a kingdom with kings and queens and princesses and princes and things like that. Sounds a little bit like a fairy tale. Well, as real world works, it's not always a fairy tale. And in the 1800s, Russia had a very well-developed culture, but Russia was actually a little bit behind in a lot of different manners that the rest of this developed world was. They weren't necessarily up to par with a lot of Western nations. There was a lot of, well, poverty. There's a lot of suffering going on in Russia. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world just about anywhere you look. But in Russia, they realized that they were, they were missing something that other people were able to attain. And you had this festering class warfare, and you have the Tsars, who are basically the kings, you have them trying to sort of suppress this a little bit, and you have this revolutionary, very vicious group of people in this mentality, this ideology building up that says we can't, through peaceful means, achieve the goals we want to, so we're going to do it through, through bloodlust. Well, this is where Vladimir Lenin comes into the picture. Vladimir Lenin has an older brother named Sasha. Well, he goes by, he's, or he's more casually known as Sasha. Vladimir's brother, Sasha, is, of course, older than Vladimir, and he is actually part of some of these anti-Tsar, they're anti-the monarchy, they're opposed to the government in Russia, which exists in sort of the late 1800s to about the 19-teens. And Vladimir's brother actually is part of a, a group that says, you know, we're friends in university, we're high IQ people, we're somewhat intellectual, but we're people who are just really opposed to the state power. He's part of a coup that says we're going to make bombs. Again, TNT, revolvers, a few tools like that are becoming wildly easily accessed in Russia. And, of course, the government is suppressing things. So, again, one of the things that TNT and revolvers are used for is to keep checks and balances on the, the government. Well, unfortunately, when you don't have good moral architecture to work with, your moral architecture will take you to do bad things. So, for better or for worse, Vladimir's brother, Sasha, he goes and makes an attempt on the basically the Tsar's life. He, they put together some stuff. They're going to try to, to blow up and kill the Tsar. Well, they're unsuccessful in doing this. However, they get caught. And Sasa, 
Sasha, Lenin's older brother, he gets sentenced to death. He gets executed. The Tsar is actually a little bit sympathetic, and he says, look, if you will recant your ways, you can have forgiveness. We won't execute you. But Sasha says, no, it would be against my principles to recant anything, and therefore you'll have to kill me. Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, as a young man, he sees this happen. Now, Vladimir Lenin, as many others, he's sure he's influenced by Marxism, but a little bit more some of the other literature and the novels that were going around Russia at the time. Vladimir is very disrupted with the way the world works. Vladimir Lenin, he, he's upset. Again, there's a lot of class warfare going on in Russia at the time. He wants things to be a little bit more equitable. Again, his intentions are, I want things to be a little bit more equitable. We have this sort of intention of equality. We want the peasants to have things. We want um, the power not to be on other people, but we want some power ourselves. You know, there's a lot of people that have those intentions, but the moral architecture we have is going to determine how we bring those about. Because if we know anything about what happened in Soviet Russia is there were a lot of people killed, tens of millions of people, and we're off in tens of millions of people trying to figure out how many people were killed in internal repression. Lenin, as we find with many people of the world, he is not just inspired by things that he reads, but he's heavily inspired by his personal experience. The death of his brother really, really shapes Lenin. And eventually, as the revolution unfolds, again, not able to go a, a concise history of, of how the Soviet um, institution came to be, as opposed to the old Tsar institution in form of government, but as he comes to power, and basically the, the new revolution starts happening in the 1910s and into the 1920s, Lenin... They get these Tsars out. Actually, in the 19-teens, the Tsars get out, and you get um, one in particular who gets out, and basically not just the Tsar himself, but the whole set of family who are not the family that killed his brother. They're descendants. They're a few generations down. The ones that are currently in power when, when the revolution starts to happen, they sort of step down for power. They're put in a place in secrecy. The royalty of Russia are executed. And this happens in the 1920s. Now, this happens after Lenin's revolution has really started to take hold. It started to overthrow the country. And what you see happen is people like Lenin, they do not originate out of a Christian, a Judeo-Christian value structure. In fact, you find a lot of these people, whether you look at people like Karl Marx, you look at people like Hegel, you find a lot of these philosophers who are like super pro-socialism, communism. They say, this is the scientific way, but it's not really that scientific as much as it is just scientific in name, these people, they come to the table and they say, we're going to, we hate the distribution of things. We're going to, to change it all up. Um, of course, Marx is known for saying the religion is the opiate for the masses, though people never listen to that full quote. And for some reason, I don't know why they would think Karl Marx is a uh, authority on such a subject. But anyways, all these people, they resent and they hate Christian morality. And Lenin, when he comes in, he's seen that they killed his brother. And one of the things which is fundamental to Lenin's moral architecture is that this, and again, if you're listening to this, I'm going to take a bit of pauses right now because I want you to grasp this. Lenin's moral architecture says this. If someone has wronged you, or someone by proxy has wronged you, such as like the child of a, another royalty, the child of a czar, the current czar, if the czars have harmed you, if someone has done something wrong to you, or you can perceive that they've done something wrong to you, you can kill them. That's part of his moral architecture. 
And yet you find when you look at places where socialism and communism and Marxism manifest, they're always willing to kill people who disagree with them. And it's interesting because their intentions always say, well, we want social. We want the peace to the, to the, to the peasants, you know, peace. Land to the peasants, peace everywhere. But what they don't tell you is, well, we're coming from this from a morality that says, you know, if you disagree with us, there's no forgiveness, destruction. We have some pictures of Vladimir Lenin and his brother. Anthony actually has a, a little bit of a description. The way our studio is set up, I have no idea what you're seeing right now. I can't see the screens or the monitors or anything like that. But Anthony, I know you've got some pictures pulled up on the subject of Lenin and Sasha. This photo is a, fo a family portrait with Sasha directly in the middle and Lenin seated towards the right. And again, you, you find throughout history a lot of the people who lead these revolutions, especially violent revolutions that lead to tyranny. And even when you look at the world today, you look at people who are leading a lot of social movements. And when I use the word social, normally that would mean like a cultural movement. But actually this time when I'm saying social, I mean things which are usually qualified by the word social. Um, these people, they're not necessarily people who are doing this on behalf of others. A lot of times they claim their attentions, oh, we're doing this for the oppressed classes. So often, it's not universally true, but it's a large amount of the time the truth. The people leading this are people like Lenin who had someone in their own life be killed, and now they're willing to go out and kill others on behalf of it. They don't have the virtue of forgiveness, which, again, I'm not saying forgiveness means that there's no form of justice. There should be forms of justice. And when I say forms of justice, I don't mean we get to qualify justice however we say. When I say forms of justice, I mean when there's a specific incident, something's happened wrong, justice needs to be there. But that form of justice may look different for another situation. It's a terrible world we live in. Everybody wants to twist all words into whatever they want them to mean. But one of the things you always find in history, and in our modern world as well, is that people brand their own suffering as some other intention. They twist it. And if they do not have solid moral architecture to back that up, whatever moral architecture they have is going to bleed through. A lot of people in our world, they claim the intention of tolerance. But if you disagree with them, then they'll say, be gone. They'll strike you out. They'll try to have your life destroyed. There's a lot of people who claim that they are speaking on behalf of other people, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are. So the conversation that we've had now, I want you to take this away from it. The moral architecture you have in your life is more important than what intentions you have. You may wake up one morning, you don't know who you're going to be. You might be the blind beggar that's in the Gospel of John chapter 9. You wake up, you don't even know what's going to happen to you. Something will come into your life, and your intentions are irrelevant, but the morality that you've built your life around, that is what will carry the day. Well, we're going to go on, and we're going to get out of the studio because who wants to have fun with talkies? I mean, talkies can only be so much fun. We're going to leave the studio now. We're going to go out, and we're going to have fun with Life of the Saints. Stop there, hunchman. Hello, and welcome to Life of the Saints. I am the rector of this institution, your host. We are on the TV now. Are you a past third century saint? That I am, although I did live into the fourth century as well. What is your name, saint? Well, I am Saint Anthony of Egypt. You know, our cameraman, his name is also Anthony. He looks a lot like you. I don't know how that works. Neither do I. What do you do, St. Anthony of Egypt? Well, I was the leader of the monastic movement, 
in its early foundations. And I also spent a lot of time in the desert fighting demons. Oh, you fight the demons, yeah? Do you like to discipline these demons? Well, I don't like to, but I have to. And I asked God why I had to, and he said that it was what he wanted me to do. You see, we've been talking a lot about the bullwhips lately. Do you like the bullwhips? Do you use a bullwhip to discipline these demons? Well, I suppose my weapons of choice would be the cross, the good book, and pig. I don't know what he's talking about when he says the pig, but you see, this man has a very bad hunch. If we stretch him out, he looks a lot like a ferret. How tall are you, Anthony of Egypt? Well, now I'm a solid 5'6", but before I started getting my hunch, because of these tiny buildings... I was about eight and a half foot. Well, that is very interesting. Thank you for watching Life of the Saints. We will be back to talk about other saints in the future. I'm sick of identity politics, and I bet there's a good chance that you are too. In the church, we're not called to be people who are hyper-obsessed with what identity we may have. We're instead called to be children of God. And that's a very different thing. Anthony, what do you think of when you hear people talking about identity and this idea that diversity is a virtue, but they don't really know much about diversity and they don't really know much about what a virtue is? What do you think of when somebody asks you, what is your identity? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It, my, my immediate response, my impulsive response, whenever most people ask that question, is to talk about something involved with my ethnic heritage or something like along those lines. And... Um, you know, obviously I'll tell them that I'm an American, all that good stuff um, first. But um, that is also because a lot of times a premise of that question has to do with some sort of ethnic heritage or something along those lines. Most of the time, if someone's going to ask me, you know, what my identity is or something like that, I either assume that it's going to be something to do with my heritage or perhaps even, hopefully not, but perhaps even something to do with my sexuality. So, um, well, one of the things that I think is, is so upsetting about that you said is the word assumption. We have this reality in our culture where people have made the assumptions of identity something that is just total garbage, in my opinion. It's just total garbage that the assumptions that we have around identity is, again, something like someone's ethnicity or even things like sexuality. You know, we get to the table and all of this stuff is just utter garbage, in my opinion. Um, are they important things that may play a role in people's life? Yeah, but there should be a lot more important things in people's life than characteristics like that. Like a lot of times people are, are watered down to superficial characteristics, and one of the things I really want us to do, and I want us here at Kingdom of the Logos to help with, is changing the assumptions we have in the world. Let's move past that people are just whatever they may appear to be in a picture, and let's actually get to the core of who and what people actually are. Anthony, what do you think about changing the assumptions we have in the world? Oh, I, um, I completely agree. And that's kind of where I was heading as well, is that um, it is sad that if someone wants to ask me that, that is my immediate response. But again, it is because of the, the premise of the question normally has to do with that. It would be much more reliable and realistic for the premise of the question to have to be to be involved more with my values and um, what I align myself with and things of that nature. And that actually, I think, would be a much stronger um, change of identity. Well, even if we look back historically, I think if you ask people who or what they are, they might answer something like, you know, I, I work at the glass plant. You know, I'm a farmer. I'm something to that effect. People would associate it more with occupation necessarily than they would some sort of superficial thing. And the church, 
We have to start working with this assumption that we are first and foremost children of God. If we in the church, when people ask who we are, you, you answer the question, I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm a Christian. These are things which we need to be doing. We need to push back on our culture. We need to say, your identity is not some fleshly circumstance. Your identity is the, the virtue that you have in your life. It's the content of your character. It's the content of your mind. I want us to go over to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where we find Nicodemus talking with Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. In John chapter 2, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in the Jewish culture are doing some bad things. There's actual real collusion going on there in the temples. They're basically making people pay money so that they can then tithe and offer. If you could just imagine if you go to church in a modern setting, there are some thugs over at the door who say, look, I'm going to snap that arm off if you don't pay me X amount of money so that you can put in X amount of money to the thing. Be like somebody comes in and say, oh, I've got a tithe, easy money, I made $1,000, I'm going to put $100 in the offering plate. And you've got a thug at the door that says, I'm going to tear that arm off unless you pay me $100. And then you can, afterwards then, I'll put maybe 25 of it in there for you. Really terrible stuff. But Jesus doesn't get hung up on any of that. That's what the religious leaders were doing just one chapter before. Jesus comes in and he is presented with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Jesus does not address Nicodemus as a Pharisee. He basically addresses him as as an individual with individual circumstances. He says, oh, you're somebody who came to me in the middle of the night looking for a message. I'm not going to treat you as some abstract group. I'm going to treat you as you. And in this, we get a very interesting statement. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of times we think of something very mystic when we think of being born again, and we also think of heaven, something abstract and also rather mystic when we think of the kingdom of God. I want us to change our assumptions about all of this. Again, I'm not here to beat up on prior assumptions, unless they're bad assumptions, but I want us to look at this with a very practical sense. Jesus is saying, your fleshly birth does not matter. Your acceptance of my testimony is what matters. Have you been transformed? Have you accepted me into your life? That is what matters. If you want to see the kingdom of God, around you, not just in the future or something in the distance such as heaven, but if you want to see the kingdom of God around you, you need to understand that you are born again. Skipping over just a few verses, we find Jesus talking again in verse 5 where he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, what we're finding is Jesus saying, your identity is not your fleshly circumstances. Even back a few thousand years ago, people are so obsessed with the world. Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Do you need to become a Jew before you can be a Christian? All this stuff, which is just total garbage. Jesus comes along and says, nope, it's your faith. It's your identity in me. It is not your fleshly circumstances which determine who you are. It is your relationship to me which matters. So in a world where they want to have all these assumptions about who you are and your identity, push back against it, say, you ask who I am, I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian. That is what matters. That is what's going to shape who we are and how we act. Anthony, earlier today we've been talking about the difference between one's intentions and one's moral architecture. What do you think the outcome of our society could be if people's moral architecture includes this assumption which says, first and foremost, I'm a child of God? Well, um, I think that historically you could take a look at what took place whenever people whenever especially um, the majority of people took that view 
And I think that, I mean, just empirically speaking, a lot of good things would happen. I think that um, people would take more individual agency to make the world better. And I think that that, honestly, is enough to make a massive difference. Yeah, that's one of the things which perplexes me. Um, I got so upset uh, last year at General Sinry. Again, we are ministers in the Church of the Nazarene, myself and Amanda. Anthony is a locally licensed minister. He's going up the thing. I, I love having Anthony around. He's, he's going down that path. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have assemblies. There's a district assembly, then there's the general assembly, which is the global church. The Church of the Nazarene does um, ordination and stuff like that in the global scale by the general superintendent who's sort of over the global church, um, though we have them set out in regions. There's not just one. Long story short, I went to General Assembly, which is sort of like the global churches coming together. It happens once every few years. I went to one last year, and they had a set of Bible commentaries out. And I was looking for sanctification, holiness. I was opening up the one that had S in it. I was like, oh, a good way for me to find out who these people are. I want to see how many different people have been fussing about sanctification here. So I opened it up, and I opened the book to socialism, which really wasn't expecting to be in a uh, biblical dictionary set, but, you know, it was in there. So I was like, well... I want to read this, and there was several pages on it, and it was talking about how socialism is is the most New Testament-aligned ideology, and then I was like, well, what does it say about capitalism, and I flip over to capitalism, and there was like a paragraph in it, and it said, it's what people blame for the 2008 crisis in like the United States, and I was like, this is total garbage, like it, it the only thing it says about capitalism is that it caused a, or it didn't even say explicitly, just that it may have caused a economic crisis in the U.S. in like 2008. It's got pages on socialism, how this is what the New Testament teaches us. And I'm like, and who has wrote this? What sort of heretics do we have writing Bible commentaries? The New Testament doesn't tell us that we just eradicate any sort of personal agency and just say we're a member of the collective, this sort of greater good mob mentality, which is just ultimately destructive. It doesn't say that we take our virtues and export them to the government and say, well, the New Testament calls us to personal charity, so we're going to invite government compulsion in us if that's the same thing. No, it does not tell us that at all. We've got this pathological reality in the modern world where people, they realize that individualism can lead to selfishness, so they've just rejected that, and they've just embraced this full-off collectivism, which is also terrible. It, it eradicates the need for personal transformation, and every time I see this sort of pathological collectivism manifest, it reduces people down to nothing more than their superficial identity. It says, oh, you're a, you're a white male, you're part of that aggregate, or perhaps... Anthony, you're son of the ethnic ambiguous. We have no idea what you are. So you get to just put in the general minority thing. Um, it's terrible. It's garbage. Um, throw it all away. Um, in the church, we are born again. We are born again as individuals, and we enter into a body, which is a collective thing. Believe it or not, we can actually make distinctions and be critical thinkers and say there is a role for the individual being personally transformed with personal agency, and then we serve a role within the collective. We do both. We don't go pathologically down one end of the spectrum or others. We both be transformed individuals and serve a meaningful role in the larger aggregation. So I say all of this to remind us this. The world wants to throw ideological garbage at us. Throw it away. Say, no, 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 no. I'm born again. Well, we're going to leave it there. I hope you've enjoyed our program today. We've been doing a lot of restructuring here at Kingdom of the Logos. We've actually got a whole new studio, whole new, whole new everything. Um, it may look pretty much the same because we basically transplanted everything from one spot to another, but everything's new. And we're hoping to revitalize our program, let it be a bit of a well, Christian variety program where we do a little bit of comedy, we do a little bit of serious conversation. So with that being said, please send us a question or comment. You can find us on a lot of different places. 
we really want people to check out our YouTube channel, which is just Kingdom of the Logos if you go to YouTube. But if you also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kingdom of the Logos, you can download our free podcast on iTunes, CastBox, SoundCloud, and now iHeartRadio as well. Please download our podcast, take it with you, leave us a review, it would be great. If you'd like to support our podcast monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos and be a patron. We would greatly appreciate it. That would help us out a lot because we want to be able to bring you tools for liberty where you can have a transformed life. Well, anyways, I'm J. Dylan Proctor. You can follow me on Twitter at J. Dylan Proctor. And on that note, have a blessed day.